millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 131, False Economy. Thanks again to all of you who bought the fundraising episode. For those who didn't, you missed hearing about the life and legacy of Constantine VII. We discussed his 39 years living in the palace before he became sole emperor, uh, what he was doing, and what he thought of Romanus Le Capinos. We were able to do this in part thanks to the amazing amount that Constantine published once he was on the throne. Those books have gone on to be deeply influential in our view of Byzantium and the palace. If you'd like to hear all of that, then go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com and click on sale instructions in the top right-hand corner. One of the major takeaways from that episode was how Constantine tried to present himself now that he was sole ruler. He focused on underlining his position as the legitimate emperor and inheritor of the Macedonian legacy. He did this in a number of ways. First, he began to style himself officially as Constantine Porphyrogenitos. Constantine the Purple Born, reminding everyone that he was born in the palace, not in some godforsaken hut halfway up a mountain like some people. Second, he modelled his leadership on that of his father, Leo the Wise. He too would remain in the palace, leaving military affairs to others. And he presented himself as an instructor, a lawmaker, and master of ceremonies. The last time we were all together with the narrative, Romanus and his sons were evicted from the palace, one after the other, and Constantine finally took power just 33 years after his father had passed away. It was the end of an era. Romanus had ruled for 25 years, and for most of that time, Theophanes had been his chief minister, and John Corcuas had been his senior general. All three were now ousted, and Constantine's own team were in place. The Focus clan dominated the eastern armies, more on them next week, and Basil, 
Le Capinos, Romanus's illegitimate eunuch son, became one of the emperor's closest advisers. There was also a new co-emperor, as Constantine crowned his seven-year-old son, Romanus II, as his heir. Next on the agenda was to get up to speed with imperial administration. Claiming that the Lecapinae had misgoverned the realm, the Vasilefs sent out inspectors to each theme to check up on things. Having never really left the city during his four decades, Constantine's ignorance of provincial matters was considerable. As far as we know, Romanus's administration had been solid, so this exercise was probably just an excuse to get first-hand reports on the empire's health from officials who he trusted. Rather confirming this argument, the main result of these investigations was a strengthening of the Lecapinae land legislation. Back in episode 126, I talked about the terrible winter where many smallholding farmers sold up to their local magnates in order to feed their families. Twice, Romanus issued laws demanding that land be handed back and extending the rights of smallholders to repurchase farms which they now regretted selling. As we also discussed, though, much academic speculation suggests that these laws were designed to keep the magnates in line more than they were really concerned with restoring the countryside to an imagined state of justice. All we can say for sure in this instance is that when he was made aware of the facts, Constantine concurred that what was needed was more of the same. He reaffirmed Romanus's earlier injunction for the wealthy to hand back property that they'd bought since the bad winter, which was now, of course, 20 years ago. He then added a new law aimed at the theme armies. Now, this is interesting because it might suggest that John Corcuas had sent feedback about the number of soldiers turning up for campaign each year, or perhaps the amount of money being sent in lieu of actual service. We've talked about that process before. Many holders of a soldier's obligation were now happier to send cash to their general for the right not to have to fight. And this was fine by the government for now, because they could hire Armenians and other mercenary troops to fight for them. But if farms were escaping their obligations, because, for example, they'd sold up to a magnate, that was a problem. The government obviously didn't want to waste its time chasing down delinquent recruits. But in some cases, the magnates were actually perfectly happy to provide a well-equipped, well-trained soldier. The catch being that the man they sent was one of their retainers. And up in the palace, the fear was growing that these men would only be loyal to their legal master, rather than their imperial one. We should just spend a minute on this, because the army is a crucial part of the narrative, and understanding how men were recruited will give us a more rounded picture of the politics involved. Before the new law was passed, this was the situation. A family would have a hereditary obligation to provide a soldier for the themes. 
This did not have to be a member of their family. It could be anyone, as long as he was physically fit and properly equipped. I should also clarify that this only really concerned cavalry. Infantry were not so vital in an era of defence. They could be recruited when they were needed, whereas combatant cavalry were essential to fending off Arab raids. A cavalry soldier was expensive to maintain. Horses cost a lot of money to feed, house, and clothe, for want of a better word. And the soldier himself would need to maintain his armour and weapons, none of which were cheap. This placed a burden on a small holding which had the potential to overwhelm. When the emperor Nicephorus set up new themes in Europe, he decided to solve this problem by linking the burden of provision to a village tax unit. So the neighbours of a theme soldier would also contribute to his upkeep. That way, if one family fell into poverty, those living around them would compensate. In our present period, with men escaping their obligations through various means, Constantine decided to pin down the land itself. The new law announced that from now on, a specific amount of land would be registered on the tax rolls as military holdings. So instead of a village unit being left to bicker over who owed what, inspectors would now pick particular farmsteads up to a value of four pounds of gold, and they would forever be responsible for supplying the state with a soldier, or the cash equivalent. Four pounds of gold was a decent-sized estate, more than would actually be needed to fund one cavalryman. But, as disputes often arose when bits of land fell out of productive use, this large holding should be enough in good times and bad. In some cases, this would remain several farms combined, or in others, a wealthy cavalry officer whose land was worth, say, ten pounds of gold, would be informed that a portion of it had been recorded in the ledgers. No matter who bought or sold these properties, the obligation would remain fixed to the turf itself. While Constantine was getting used to the new desk, news filtered in that Baghdad had fallen to the Iranian Bayad dynasty. This was in 945. From our point of view, this was the effective end of the caliphate as we've known it. No more would the centre of Islamic power be able to direct armies against their Roman neighbour. Within the Muslim world, this was not quite as significant a moment. It had been evident for a while now that Baghdad no longer wielded the authority it once had. Nor was it clear that the Bayids were here to stay. Their power base was over the mountains in Iran, and that's where it would remain. The warlords of Syria, Iraq, and Egypt would continue to function much as they had for the past two decades. However, the Bayad annexation was still major headline news, and the Romans recognized it as a potentially positive development for them. Constantine's instinct was to make peace. 
Despite 20 years of constant warfare in Armenia, there were many in Byzantium who were happy with the status quo. Since the middle of the previous century, the Romans had been consolidating their position in the mountains. With the capture of Melitene, they now had a strong position from which to project their power against the surrounding emirates. This was an advantage which previous generations would have swooned over. For them, the mountains had stood like the gates of hell, swinging open each summer to disgorge demons down upon them. Thanks to the relentless campaigning of the Macedonian dynasty, the gates were now usually closed. This was, in itself, a major achievement. The idea that decades could now be spent without raids from the enemy was really tempting and something worth preserving. Only the profoundly optimistic dreamt of pushing on to conquer Arab territory. All experience would have told them that moves in that direction were likely to bring a more united opposition against them. Constantine was amongst those who felt this way. He had his own plans for where the empire's energies should be focused, and it wasn't toward the east. Envoys were dispatched to ask the various emirates along the border for a truce, and the first person to express an interest was the emir of Tarsus. The string of Byzantine victories had made his position increasingly vulnerable. With the enemy now in control of Melitene, he could be attacked from multiple angles, rather than just the traditional route through the Cilician gates. In the fundraising episode, I talked a lot about Constantine's love of ritual and palace ceremonies. And fortunately for us, we have a very good account of the Tarsiate ambassador's visit to the Bosphorus. The Porphyrogenitos was determined to stun his visitors with a dazzling display of wealth. The palace was cleaned and decked out in its usual splendor, but this was deemed insufficient, and so the capital's churches and monasteries were tapped up to lend extra wreaths, chandeliers, embroideries, hangings, and other ornaments. The choir of the Hagia Sophia was borrowed to provide a grand greeting. The procession route through the city was also decorated, and as the ambassadors arrived at the palace, everyone was in their finest garments, and soldiers stood holding standards. They walked through the gardens and into the building, where Persian carpets, expensive silverware and fresh flowers were all on display, and further inside, gold and silver organs sounded to announce their arrival. The floor was strewn with laurel, ivy, myrtle, and rosemary, and as they approached the throne, they passed by the highest officials of the land, all in order of rank, standing obediently before their master. Finally, they were weighed down with expensive gifts as Constantine silently watched. Negotiations didn't even begin for a week. Before then, they were feasted several times and entertained in the Hippodrome. By the time they came to talk business, an extremely favorable impression had been made. Why would we not want to be at peace with these people? If this is how we're treated when negotiating, imagine what we'll receive when we return, 
as honoured friends. Born and brought up in the palace, Constantine was a firm believer in the importance of soft power. He knew that stories of this visit would be spread far and wide across the borderlands, encouraging other emirs to desire his acquaintance. In the end, the peace with Tarsus would not hold, but not for lack of effort. The man who stood in the path of peace was the Hamdanid emir of Aleppo, Sefadola. As you know, the sword of the dynasty had gone to Baghdad in 940, leaving the eastern front open to John Korkuas, who sacked his way to Edessa and carried off the Mandilion. The Hamdanid family had always wanted to gain true power in the centre, and they spent four years in the Abbasid capital battling other factions in an attempt to seize control of the caliphate. But the Hamdanids could not match the resources of their Iranian and Egyptian rivals. Their own Turkish troops rebelled over pay and defeated Saif in battle. As the Bayids took Baghdad, Nasser and Saif managed to negotiate acknowledgments of their claims to Mosul and Aleppo and the surrounding territories. But their relationship with the new authorities remained tense. Saif returned to Syria and secured control over the local elites. This was not easy. He had to politically soothe the city dwellers and militarily intimidate the Bedouin. The tribes of the Banu Kilab, who controlled the land outside Aleppo, took several years to bring on side. But Saif was an excellent politician and general, not only did he restore his coalition of support, but he also fought off the Egyptians, who were contesting control of the coastal cities. By 948, a deal had been struck. Damascus and Tripoli would be allied with Cairo, but all the territory to the north would be safes. Control of this makeshift emirate made Saif wealthy and powerful. But within the wider world, the resources he could call on were far inferior to those of his neighbours. He knew that to both preserve his power and to grow it, he would have to resume the annual jihad. It was a way of life for many of the cities he now controlled, and they were lobbying him to take up the challenge. It would allow him to bully places like Tarsus into joining him, increasing the forces at his disposal, and it would keep his own troops in line since he was offering them a chance to gain booty. Finally, it would grant him legitimacy, that magical quality that all rulers seek. To his people and to the wider Muslim world, he would be seen as pious, continuing the ancestral duty that his fellow leaders had shirked. And with the Byzantines advancing, it had become a heroic struggle, one that would also draw recruits and donations from further afield. For all those reasons and more, war would resume in the mountains.
A less ambitious emir might have accepted peace and settled down in Aleppo, but Saif was a restless general. He would continue to batter at the door of the house of war, eventually bringing disaster upon himself. Those campaigns, however, are for next week. For now, all you need to know is that in 948, campaigning recommenced. As I discussed during the fundraising episode, Constantine wanted to emulate his father, Leo VI. A natural desire, of course, but also one that reinforced his Macedonian credentials. The last major action of his father's reign had been the failure to capture Crete in 911. The island remained in the hands of Arab pirates, who continued to terrorise the coasts and isles of the empire. Despite his well-established lineage, Constantine was not immune to the desire of all rulers for military victory, one that would announce to everyone that you were God-favoured and good at your job. Constantine therefore sought peace in the east so that he could resurrect plans to pacify the Aegean. This mission was so important to the Vasilevs that he sent out diplomatic feelers to all the major powers of the Western Mediterranean, Spain, Sicily, Africa, and the Franks, making sure no one would get in his way. This was when he put an end to the policy, such as it was, of baptizing the empire's Jews. As I mentioned in 911, it's thanks to Constantine that we know the rough size of this expedition. He left manifests of both his fleet and that of his father's as appendices to his book On Ceremonies. I should stress that these figures are just that, numbers on a page. Presumably they represent the original plan for each armada, but we can't be sure that this precise amount of troops actually set sail. However, if accurate, it seems that Constantine funded a smaller operation than the one his father had arranged, in part because he didn't want to strip the eastern themes of their defences with safe on the prowl, in part because of his diplomatic initiative, which had seen many ships head off west to make sure no other power intervened and perhaps in part because Constantine saw how expensive Leo's campaign had been and didn't want to lose as much money. If true, then it seems to have been a false economy. Of course, an expedition of this size was hardly a threadbare affair. Constantine scoured the themes for food and weapons to make sure the invading force would be well supplied, but where his father had sent 17,000 men, he seems to have only sent 10,000. The details of those who fought give us an insight into the legislation we discussed earlier. The army gathered in the Thracision theme, so naturally you'd assume that Thracision soldiers would be the first to be recruited. But of the thousand or so potential cavalrymen, about 800 paid not to serve. 
Instead, recruits were found from nearby Slavic and Armenian colonies, together with newly minted theme soldiers from near Melitene. We also get a sense of the guesswork involved in medieval logistics. The army called up men to serve, but then ran out of transport ships. Some of these men may have trekked hundreds of miles and had to go home. Presumably, they would have to be paid, or risk them travelling across Anatolia in a dangerous mood. 171 ships were found for the assault, and we're told that nine of these were Rus vessels serving for pay, and that two of them were manned by prisoners from Constantinople. They set sail in summer under the command of the Admiral Constantine Gongilius. Gongilius was a eunuch who had served Romanus loyally. It's interesting to note that no members of the Phocas family were invited to take part. The Porphyrogenitos wanted all the credit for himself. Sadly, despite all the details we have pre-disembarkation, we know almost nothing about what happened next. We know the fleet landed safely on Crete, but the story which follows places all the blame for the failure of the mission on Gongilius. It's said that he didn't scout the Arabs or make a proper camp, so to no one's surprise, he was surprised by the enemy and routed, fleeing with the ships that he could save. But this story sounds implausible and designed to save the emperor's blushes. Probably Gongilius took all the precautions he could, but was still defeated. Fighting on an island controlled by the enemy was a tough task. The Romans had to win the initial battle decisively so that they could take control of the countryside and feed themselves. In both 911 and 949, failure to do this was essentially the end of the whole process. They had no hope of winning after suffering a setback, huddled in their camp, watching their rations disappear. Men's morale was always going to collapse, and a flight back into their ships was the likely next move. This was a major blow to Constantine's prestige. In fact, one of the historians he commissioned would decide to simply leave the whole incident out of his work. But that same summer, news came from the east which helped offset the damage a little. The Focus clan had not been vindictive when they took over the eastern commands. Though John himself had to go, his brother Theophilus Corcuas was retained in his post. Theophilus was operating in the very north of the frontier and had continued to put pressure on the lone Arab outpost at Theodosiopolis. With Saif's help, they had ejected their Byzantine garrison a few years earlier. But in Saif's absence, the Romans had spent the last few years indulging in the same destructive tactics which had ruined Melitene. They surrounded the city with forts, terrorized the countryside, 
and ambushed anyone trying to communicate or trade with the Arabs. Worn down by this at-large siege, the emir waved the white flag, and Korkuas's men marched in. Three hundred years ago, it had stood as the capital of Roman Armenia. Theodosiopolis was now back in the fold. As at Melitene, the Muslim population were given the choice between conversion or exile. And again, the government would step in to take charge of the abandoned land. The Byzantine conquest would be permanent, and new settlers were welcomed. Though they had been hardly capable of it for a while now, this meant that there would be no more raids coming through the Armeniacon theme. For the local people, two centuries of terror were effectively over. This victory, though far less visible than Crete would have been, nonetheless represented a great moment for the Romans. They now had forward bases running the whole diagonal length of the mountains, from Armenia proper to the Taurus in the south. With defensible frontiers established, Constantine will repeatedly offer peace to Seyfadola over the next few years. Had he accepted, the next half-century would have played out very differently. But as you know, and as we'll see next week, when you've made your name as the sword, it becomes difficult to sheathe it. deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.